At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Friends, if you've been with us in 2023, you know that we have been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians. Began all the way back in January, and we have seen throughout the year that Jesus is inviting us to be on mission with him in the world. What an invitation from what a Savior that he invites us to join him in spreading everywhere the fragrance of the aroma of Christ. And we saw that this is a a mission that Jesus has prepared us for, and then Paul briefs us on, and we are encouraged to endure on this mission, not just to serve Christ while we're in college or when we're young or when the kids are little or when we're empty nesters, but we are to endure in living on mission for Christ in every phase of our lives. And then even over the summer, we saw ways that we can connect financially to the mission of Christ. And so we have seen a number of things from our study of 2 Corinthians. And today we begin a six-week series, which will take us to the end of this great letter as we look at 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13 in a series called Mission Own. At the end of this letter, the Apostle Paul shares some of his most personal comments as he talks about his ministry and how he has owned the mission that Christ has offered to him and that we might look at his example in his life so that we might see how we could own the mission as well. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to be in part one of this series looking at chapter 10. But before we do that, I want to share with you a story from my days in high school. When I was in high school, I played basketball. And on our basketball team, in the 10 or 11 guys who played the most, we had, count them, two sets of twins. Now, I I don't know what the threshold is to call two people identical twins. But I can tell you that these two sets of twins looked an awful lot alike. I don't think it was an accident that we faced way more zone defenses than man-to-man trying to keep up with that ever-changing lineup. But though many people might look at those two sets of twins and get them confused, as somebody who spent time with them every day, I could tell the difference. I I, I knew their, their slight differences in appearance. I I knew the way they moved athletically a little bit different. I knew the the things that they talked about and how often they talked varied from person to person. And so there were some differences that when you were around them a lot that you just grasped. But I got to tell you, this coming fall, we're going to be having a reunion for that team. And we're going to get together. And two of those guys I haven't seen in 30 years. And the other two I haven't seen for probably a decade. Now, when I think about that length of time, I've got to tell you, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm nervous that I'm not going to be able to identify one from the other because I haven't spent a lot of time with them recently. Now, I tell you that story not just to to, to confide in you the difficulties I'm going to have in identifying my friends in a few weeks. I tell you this today because it has a connection to the passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at this week. You see, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is talking about two different groups of people, real apostles like himself, as well as some opponents that he had in Corinth. And 
though they both wore the same jersey, and though some might think that they were twins, those who had spent a lot of time with the real apostle and with Paul's opponents knew that there were some significant differences. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10 to see some of the differences between the real apostle and the fake imposters that were opposing Paul in that city. And, and this is not just an academic exercise. It's actually important for us because we live in a world where there are a lot of people who wear the jersey of Jesus, a lot of people who claim the name of Christ. And yet, those differing, different people, those different voices do not always sing harmony, even on some of the most significant and important issues. So how do we determine the wheat from the chaff those that we should follow from those that we should avoid. The real apostle from the fake imposter. Well, we're going to see something about that as we look at 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn there. I want to read for us these verses, and then after I read these verses, I'll back up and make a couple of observations to help us better understand these differences. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, says this, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of your authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present." Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. 
Now, friends, in these 18 verses, we're going to see two things that will help us understand the difference between one that God is, is really using and one who is merely trying to gain some worldly influence. Well, what are those things that we need to see? The first thing I want us to see is this. Paul basically is asking a question here and saying, will the real apostle please stand up? There were two groups of people, Paul the apostle, and then there were others who were opposing him, who were claiming to be not just an apostle, but who were claiming to be, we'll see next week, super apostles. And so there were these two different groups. And so Paul in chapter 10 feels it important to clarify the one that God is actually using, the one who God is actually with. Now, the way he does that throughout this section is he's going to compare and contrast himself with his opponents. And he he does this a number of different ways. We see in verse 1 and verse 10 where Paul is kind of summarizing some of the arguments that his opponents have against him. We might think of these as things that Paul might have said with air quotes if this had been video instead of a written text. It says, you know, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he is going to summarize here in some air quotes what people are saying about him. He's somebody who is humble when face to face, but bold towards you when away. He'll pick this up again and say that they're saying of him that his letters are weighty and strong, but he has a different demeanor when he's present among us. What were they doing? Well, apparently Paul's opponents were saying that that Paul was kind of all bark and no bite. Paul was someone who, who was really agitated and animated and bold in his letters, but when he showed up, he was kind of quiet and passive. Now, this particular criticism we'll pick up a little later. But notice that they're trying to draw in contrast. And they're what, basically what they're saying is, you can't trust this guy. God's with him. I mean, he sure writes a good word, but how does he act when he's among us? Now, what, he said, what they say next is actually something that tells us the reason for their disagreements with Paul. It had to do with his style and with his appearance. Notice that they said that his bodily presence is weak. His bodily presence is weak. In other words, his clothes are not all that sharp. His shoe game is way off. The car he drives, eh, he doesn't even drive a car. The place he's staying, I don't know. The way he looks, there's way more handsome people than him. They were trying to initiate and say, how could God be with that guy, given all of those struggles and challenges? But not just his bodily presence, but also they were questioning his speech. They were saying, he he doesn't talk so good. He's not this amazing orator. He doesn't have this wonderful inflection. He's not all that funny. I mean, they they, they had these criticisms of him in his his speech. Now, when when I say that the, the people in the first century thought that Paul looked a little weak and that his speech was of no account, how many of you is that somewhat of a surprise for, right? I mean, nobody wants to raise their hand. It's in the Bible. You're going to, yeah, I understand. We all knew it. When I read it this week, I was like, that's surprising for me. It's surprising for me. 
Because I, I am predisposed to think that Paul was an amazing orator. And I'm predisposed to thinking that everybody would want to follow that guy because he wrote half of our New Testament. And yet there were those in the first century who struggled with Paul and who openly questioned if God was really with him. Now, why would they do that? Well, they said that his bodily presence is weak. We don't have a physical description of Paul in the uh, New Testament. But what we do have of Paul is a first century description of him in a book outside of the Bible. Okay, so this is not the Bible. We can't say that definitively this is accurate, but this is a first century description of the Apostle Paul. And how did they describe him? They described him as a man of middling size, and his hair was scanty. Anybody here relates to this? Some of you do. It's okay. A man of middling size, and his hair was scanty, and his legs were a little crooked, and his knees were projecting or far apart. And he had large eyes, and his eyebrows met, and his nose was somewhat long. Now, is that how you thought Paul looked? I mean, when I think of Paul, I, 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 don't, I don't think of this. And yet, this was the Paul that was known in the first century. The critics in Corinth were basically saying, that guy is speaking for God? How about his speech? They said his speech was of no account. There's an interesting little verse in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 9, that, that you may have glossed over when you've read it, but I promise you every preacher memorizes this verse. <laughs> we memorize it, we meditate on it, we encourage each other with it. Sunday before services, after services, especially after the 8.30, we, we, we look at this passage. There was a young man who was listening to Paul preach, and he fell asleep. Because Paul just kept talking. Now, we might say, well, the hour was late. He was just one guy. But it could be that Paul also wasn't somebody who was the most eloquent orator. We also see this when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul gives a self-assessment of his speaking ability. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul was basically admitting that he was not the most eloquent of speakers, that the, the substance of what he was communicating was far more significant than his style in doing so. And yet there were those who were looking to Paul and trying to discredit him because of his physical appearance in trying to discredit him because of his speaking ability. Now, when we look at all of this, it, it, it had a particular root among the Corinthians. See, the Corinthians were, were Greeks. They were, they were part of Greece. They were, they were Greek-thinking people. And the Greeks struggled with things like you know, the, the appearance of things. Look at what D.A. Carson says about them. It's a long quote, but it's helpful. It says, in short, the Corinthians were quick to seize every emphasis in Christianity that spoke or seemed to speak of spiritual power, of exaltation with Christ, of freedom, of triumph, of victorious Christian living, of leadership, of religious success. But they neglected or suppressed those accents in Christianity that stressed meekness, servanthood, obedience, humility, and the need to follow Christ and his suffering if one is to follow him in his crown. They glimpsed what Christ had done, yet failed to contemplate what remains to be done 
They understood that D-Day had arrived, but mistook it for V-Day. They loved Christian triumphalism, but they did not know how to live under the sign of the cross. Friends, I, I share this with you because I think there's some similarities between American culture today and Greek culture long ago. Like the Greeks, we are prone, we are drawn to the beautiful and the eloquent, the funny and the entertaining. We're we're drawn to it, just as the Greeks were. And people in the first century tried to discredit Paul because he wasn't the funniest, he wasn't the most entertaining, he wasn't the most beautiful. Now, I want to let this sink in for just a moment. Just let it sink in for a moment. That there were some who questioned if God was with Paul. There were some who openly questioned it in the first century. I don't want to camp on this, but, you know, if if anybody has ever questioned if God is with you because of some of the circumstances that you're dealing with in life or some of the challenges or struggles, guess what? You've got good company in Paul. But beyond that, I, I want to raise this to a macro level question. This is actually a really important question. It's a really important question. Was God really with Paul? If God was with Paul, then we might have some confidence in what was written by Paul was actually from God. But if, if God was not with Paul, then what do we do with the half of the New Testament that God used to deliver to us? So it's really important for us to understand who the real apostle is. Well, thankfully, in chapter 10, and we'll see next week again in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives a defense of his ministry. And he he tries to articulate why and how he is actually the real apostle representing God. So what we're going to see next is we're going to learn to recognize the real thing by looking at the argument that that Paul lays out. In in chapter 10, we'll see more next week in chapter 11, but in chapter 10, Paul is going to identify some of the things that distinguish him from the fake apostle, the the, the real apostle from the fake imposter. These are, are the two groups, and Paul is contrasting himself with them throughout this chapter. Now, and and sometimes he's doing this very explicitly, very clearly, contrasting himself with them. But in other instances, it's more implied. But if we we look long enough at this passage, we see the the differences between Paul and the fake. And so let's, let's look at this as Paul defends his ministry. What are some of the things that would help us identify the two? The first thing I want us to look at is their demeanor, their demeanor. The, the, the fakes, their demeanor was very commanding in its physical presence. They, they looked sharp. They talked beautifully. Their, their rhetoric and their logic and their emphasis on the right syllables, I mean, their game was on. And they tried to leverage that. They were so put together. They tried to leverage that to influence the church in Corinth. Let's contrast that, though, with, with, with Paul, the real thing. Paul here says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. There was something about Paul that was, that was identified and marked not by the wisdom of the day, not by what looked successful in his day, 
But what marked him was the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Why? Because that's who Paul was following. That's where he was taking his cue. That's whose life was pouring out through his. It was the meekness and the the gentleness of Christ. Friends, if we're wanting to see who the real thing is, we need to look and find out who they are truly following. Now, this is not to say that, that the beautiful cannot be used of God. It is not to say that the eloquent cannot be used of God. But what it is saying is that we ought to take a second look. Is it just their physical appearance or their eloquence, or does their life carry with it the aroma of Christ? Jesus was one who was meek and gentle. Now, Jesus would turn over the tables in the temple. He would do that. But he didn't do that just to to, to fight for himself. He turned it over because of the impact those decisions were having on the people of his day. Jesus was fighting for them, not for him. His general attitude was meek and gentle. Second thing, what were the primary weapons? What were the primary weapons of battle? Well, the the weapon of the fakes was was arguments and lofty opinions. They, they They had papers, they had arguments. They could talk and they could talk and they could talk and they tried to persuade and persuade and persuade. That was what marked their their ministry. But what about Paul? What marked his ministry? Well, what marked Paul's ministry was divine power. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul understood that the weapon that was needed to lead people to Christ and to disciple them, to see their minds transformed, was going to be the Word of God, the person of Christ, and the Spirit of God. Those are are the weapons of warfare that Paul brought, and they were strong enough to tear down all of the opinions and all of the perspectives of his day and to bring them into captivity to Christ. The primary weapon of Paul's ministry was the Word of God and the Spirit of God, whereas the primary weapon of the ministry of the fakes was their own skill in presentation. What else? How about, were they Christians? Well, it's interesting. When we look at verse 7, Paul makes this statement. He says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Apparently, both groups were claiming to be Christians. Both groups were saying, I'm wearing the jersey of Jesus. Paul doesn't challenge that. <coughs> he doesn't question that. What he does do is he says, if, if they can say that they are in Christ, then certainly you would have to admit that I can as well. And so we must look beyond, friends, to find out who we should listen to, who we should follow. We must look beyond just those who claim Christ to see these other things about them. He keeps going. What was their primary intent? What was their intent? Well, the the fakes apparently had an interest in controlling things. 
They wanted to destroy. But Paul's primary intent was not to control the Corinthians. It was ultimately to build them up, to point them to Christ, to see him transform their mind, their hearts, their souls, to see their eternity secure in him and to see their lives transformed in him. Their hope and their intent was not control, but to build them up. What else? Were they walking the walk or merely talking the talk? I love what it says in verses 9 to 11. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my letters, for they say. Paul's like, my opponents, they just say. That's all they do. They say, say, say. They don't do. They just say. They just criticize me. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand, Paul says, that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul wanted to remind them that the criticism, that he was two-faced, that he was one way in his letters and another way in person, that that was not an accurate assessment of how he was living his life. He didn't just talk the talk, he also walked the walk. Significant difference between a fake and the real thing. The real thing has a consistency and integrity about their life. Whereas the fake imposter will just say things without actually doing them. How about comparisons? When we look at the comparison situation, verse 12 tells us that the, 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 the fake imposters have this habit of comparing themselves to one another. It says when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They all would speak and then they would have meetings and they would say, well, who was the number one you know, preacher today? It's like, well, your message was better than mine, so you're number one, and my message was better than his, so I'm number two and he's number three. They were just comparing themselves to one another. But Paul's comparison was not comparing himself to other preachers. He didn't really have any interest in that. Paul's issue was comparing himself to Jesus Christ and to understand that Jesus is the one who would commend him. For for it is not the one who commends himself, Paul says, who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. The standard was never, am I better than them? The standard was always, am I faithful to Christ? That was what Paul was concerned about. That's what the real apostle is concerned about, accurately pointing people to Christ, not just saying whatever needs to be said in order to generate a following, not just being better than the guy beside him or in the building down the road. What about credit? What about credit? What about who ultimately is is receiving the adulation for whatever good happens? In chapter 10, verse 12, it says that these fakes, that they they were boasting in the labors of others. Now, why would Paul say that? Well, Paul would say that because who was the first one to come to Corinth? Who was the one to bring the gospel to Corinth? It was Paul. It was Paul and his friends who were the first to bring the gospel to the city of Corinth. These imposters who had showed up after him had come into town late and tried to take credit for what God had done in the ministry of Paul. They were most concerned with being personally celebrated. That's what they were all about. They wanted that adulation. Whereas Paul, by by, by contrast, viewed any ministry he had as something that God had assigned to him. 
And he, he wanted to make clear to the Corinthians and to state publicly that what he was most interested in was that, that any boasting that would be done would be done in the Lord because it was the Lord who had assigned the ministry. It was the Lord who was doing the work. And then, last, we'll see this ultimate desire. What was their ultimate desire? Well, verses 15 and 16 give us a sense. It says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Again, their desire was merely staying in one spot and gaining more personal power and, and influence. But what was the true apostle? What was Paul's desire? Paul's desire was to continue spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. He was most interested in that, not in what it meant for him. See, friends, these are, are, are the things that are laid out by Paul to show a difference between himself, the real apostle, and the fake imposters who were opposing him. Now, given all of that, I want to share just a couple of, of applications about this in two different directions. The first set of applications I want to share have to do with those who might be looking for a church. Now, you might say, well, pastor, we've already found one. We're here. I get it. I know many of you are here. But when I, when I say this, I don't just mean looking for a church to attend. I mean looking for people that you would read their books, listen to their messages, be influenced by their ministry. How do we, how do we know who we should listen to in this life? And for some of you, you are right now in this season. You're going place to place trying to find a church to participate in. So it's helpful for us to look at what Paul says in chapter 10 and see in it some encouragement for how we might make some decisions about what influences we allow into our lives and where we worship. So what are some ideas? First thing, don't rely only on your first look. Don't rely only on your first look. Don't just look for who has the, the nicest building. Don't just look for um, who has the funniest speaking ability. Don't just look for whose music is played the best. Don't just look for, you know, the temperature that's just right in the room. All those things, are, I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying that they don't have some weight. I'm just saying that that's just the first look. If you find a place that you feel like you might be, take a second look and see what lies below the surface. If the people of Corinth could be confused, could be distracted by their first look, we can be as well. Take a second look. See what really that place or that pastor or that ministry, see what they're really all about. And ask, what is their primary weapon? What's their primary weapon? You know, some ministries, some organizations, it's all about the program. The program is the key. And so it's all about a system. It's all about a program. It's all about an event. It's all about a feeling. But it's interesting when we look at what Paul says here. He says that the most important weapon was the weapon of the Word of God that is able to take down the strongholds, the divine power that is found in the Spirit, the victory that is won by Christ is what the primary weapon of any ministry that we should lean into should be. And so what is the primary weapon of the ministries that you are associating with? Is it the Word of God or is it something else? Interesting question to ask. 
Are, are leaders looking to control or are they looking to build up? Is it just about gathering people into rooms or is there really a desire among the people that you are gathering with for life transformation in Christ? Is that, a, is that the objective of the leadership of that church? Are the leaders of that church, are the people in that building, are they walking the walk or are they just simply talking talk? See, friends, these are, are things that we should think about and things that we should consider if we are looking for a church. And I, I tell you, though Wildwood is not perfect in these things, we look to verse, verses like First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 10 to get our direction for how we might be a leadership team, while, how we might be a church that is living into God's call upon churches. And lastly, who is the hero of our congregation? Who's the hero of the congregation? Who's the hero of the ministry? You know, I, I always get a little nervous when people talk about churches and they refer to them as so-and-so's church. You know, it, that's, that's, that's Bob Smith's church because Bob Smith is the pastor. You know, we, we do this in our world, right? And, and at one level, I understand it. But really, I, I really don't want you ever to refer to Wildwood as Pastor Mark's church. And you know what? I... I don't, I don't think you would, <laughs> but, but don't. Why? Because who is the leader of the church? Who is the one that is to be celebrated? If we're doing it right, who is the one who sustains us? It is Jesus who sustains us. It is Jesus' church. We gather in his name. We worship him. We listen to his word. We follow him. Who's the hero of the congregation? Now, how about an application set for those who are, who are looking to own this mission? If, if you're here today and you're like, well, I've already determined where I want to be, but, but how, I want to, like Paul, own this mission and take a step forward in serving Christ, what encouragement might we have from Paul's example in these verses? Well, a few things. Verse 1, we need to know where the power is. The power is found in Christ. The power is found in Christ. You know, our worship team's gonna come up in a minute and lead us in a closing song. They, they need to, as they step forward to that moment, that they need to be relying upon Jesus and looking to lift him up. It is not about our skill. It is not about our performance. The same thing is true for me when I preach. The same thing is true for you when you step into a children's classroom or lead an adult conversation or greet people here in the building or share Christ with your neighbor. Where is the power found for that ministry? It's found not in us. It's found in Christ. We need to know where the power lies. Second thing, we need to know who the hero is. Jesus is the hero. He's the one with the power. He's the one who is the hero. He's the one that we should celebrate. If our spiritual story is all about us, we're telling it wrong. Our spiritual story, the ministry that we get to be a part of, is ultimately a story of what Jesus has done and is doing. He's the hero. We need to know who we are following. We need to know who we are following, that we would not take our P's and Q's on how we should respond to conflict or criticism from Twitter or from politicians or even from each other. But we are to take our cues for how we would respond to those things from the one that we are following, from Jesus himself. And we need to know the one who commends us. How did we get the job of being on mission with Christ? We got it because he saved us, he equipped us with his spirit, and he calls us to serve him. He is the one who has commended us into his mission 
and into his care. Friends, this is easy to remember because no matter what the question, we know who the answer is. Friends, we need to recognize the real thing as we step into mission together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to study it today. Lord, I I pray that we would be a, a group of people who walk the walk, who lean into you, who receive the forgiveness that is found in you, and Lord, who look not only to the surfacey things, but to the deeper things that we would see our lives transformed in your care. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.